this. Maybe one of you two did about it, but Reverse Evangelion, where Shinji is in charge of Zela and Gendo has to pilot the Ava. <laughs> All right, Dad. <laughs> pilot the fucking man. Welcome to the Anime Research Group, a show about the weird and wonderful mistake that is anime. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And this week, in our quest to watch all the shows we never had time for, we look at Noin to your other self. A show about multiple timelines, wars between worlds, and probably Schrodinger's cat at some point. But before we get into the anime itself, let's talk about what we've been doing. Well, I watched every available trailer for anime next season with a friend, mm. which is a huge waste of time. <laughs> next season, all sequels? No, nothing. There's nothing that interested me. Mapper making another quote unquote prestige show about a, a sport. Okay. I guess it looks infinitely worse than Yuri on Ice, but it was the least uninteresting looking thing. Well, there was the one uh, Yuri show that I don't remember the name of, but that seemed kind of hmm. Well, apparently, we're getting new Higarashi this year so that's yes i do not care like i remember looking at the at the lineup like a week or two ago and there was just nothing that really held my interest there were one or two manga adaptations but yeah i can just reread the manga if i really care about that so azekon and dorhedra are remaining the best anime of the year for me i guess yep yep second here i i mean we, we it was highly unlikely anything was coming coming out this year to top those Honestly, I thought the uh, middle four episodes of Decadence meant that it would probably be at least second best, but no. Yeah. Speaking of Decadence, like I, I finished that, and I think you finished it as well this week uh -huh. for the final episode. I, I liked the show a lot. It had all the components I enjoyed. It had giant mechs, weird monsters, cool fight scenes with like anti-gravity stuff. Interesting premise, and... I like how you said giant mechs is one of the core things. There's no mechs in it. That's true. Well, the Decadence is a giant nuclear rocket-powered fist. No, it doesn't count. I mean, it, it's basically a giant... I mean, it's a rocket punch. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a mech, yeah, you're right. It's much, it's much better than a mech. It's a giant... Um, it's a giant moving city. Those are always good. Yeah, except yeah. when they're not. Well, like I said, I really liked the middle four episodes of uh, Decadence, where it was about the the quote unquote shit revolution, which was a really good um, dissection of uh, unrest movements. And then the final three episodes were okay. Yeah. They weren't bad, but they didn't get the themes across as well, and the characters had kind of. They had too many of them, and they didn't do a particularly good job of balancing them all. In particular, the dual protagonist thing really didn't. Yeah, it was a lot more about Kaburagi towards the end than it was about Natsume. Yes. Also, the, the epilogue in the final episode really rubbed me the wrong way. We've got an anti-capitalist show, and uh, no spoilers, the epilogue makes it seem like, ah, it's fine, we just did a new capitalism. Where yeah. everybody is happy with each other. <laughs> we made our own capitalism with blackjack and hookers. It's just like, okay, you've made a great show about, but no, you've made a good show about all the problems with it, and then, as usual, you haven't included any alternative. Yeah, still, still a show worth watching. Still a good show, and yes, you should watch it. And the lot of good visual things too that we haven't talked about. Anyway, 
Besides that, I also caught up on the Power Ranman, which is just JoJo Part 7, uh, mixed with wacky races and cars, and also... Uh... No, that's basically it. It's a fun show, I enjoy the character design, I enjoy the music, and I think the chilling out before the Storm episode has to be one of my, my favorite comedic episodes in a while, just by the amount of running gags and character development, everybody got character focus, everybody got in that episode. That was a good episode. Yeah, also I uh, watched the first four episodes of Aria, finally watching that, and I've spent most of my time playing Hades on the Switch, which which is definitely my favorite roguelike since The Binding of Isaac came out. It's very much a just one more run game for me. I found myself at two in the morning just, well, I've died, well, let's go out again. Good game, good game. Very glad to be finally playing it after two years in early access where I couldn't reach it. How about you, Ian? I have decided that watching stuff after I was born is for suckers. (laughs) So I've been watching really old OVAs. Uh, there was a Tale of Genji movie from, I think, 1987, which was a complete waste of time because the Heian era is really, really, really <laughs> a hot take. Um, the, Heian, the Heian era is what? Really dull. Or at least it was really dull as portrayed in this show. And there was Cypher the Video, which was a little bit more fun to watch. It's not really a story. It's just several music videos put together. All right, Danny, tell us about um, life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow, this is not this is oh, this is something. All right, Danny, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Noe? Well, the anime ran from October two thousand and five until March two thousand and six for a total of twenty four episodes. It was an original property made by Satellite, a studio we've not encountered before. On an episode of this podcast, you've heard. Rip Symphagear. Yep. Our second episode ever. They've made shows such as Sugo Chara, Macros Frontier, AKB48, The Next Frontier, and Log Horizon. Dropped it so hard. (laughs) I'm still looking forward to season three sooner or later, now that he's finally out of jail for tax fraud. It's so weird for there to be any list in anything in this show that I have seen all of them. (laughs) They seem to be a studio that cooperates on a lot of their shows with other studios. When I looked at their lineup, a total of 13 shows were co-produced with other studios. It was also founded in Sapporo, Hokkaido, which is a rarity, as most anime studios are founded in Tokyo, though they did eventually move their headquarters there. This show's original concept is credited to its director, Kazuki Akane, uh, but Freya will tell us more about him later, though apparently he called Noin the anime version of Stand By Me, a Stephen King novel that I've not read. Have either of you read it? Mm. I've only read Misery. Hmm. Have you seen the movie? Nope. So we don't know whether that's an accurate statement or not, but we'll take his word for it, I guess. All right. Time for the episode summaries. Ian! Yeah, this is a series that involves time slash interdimensional travel. So if this gets confusing, I guess I apologize, but it's not my fault, it's the anime's fault. Episode one is titled Blue Snow, and in this episode there are two separate groups of characters we need to introduce. There's the Dragon Knights and the people who live in the, quote, present timeline. Uh, it opens on an action scene of the Dragon Knight fighting some kind of Cronenbergian Hindu god near a ring in the sky, the Ouroboros. 
but most of the episode is going to focus in on the present timeline in Hakodate, Hokkaido. It's the last day before the summer break, and the school children have planned to have a test of courage in the graveyard, since uh, Miho, who is one of the students, claims she had seen a ghost. Our male lead Yu says he can't go because he has cram school. And overall, he's just not having a great time of it. When he's at his house, we learn that his mother is overbearing. She wants him to spend all his time studying and not hanging out with his friends. Our female lead Haruka meets him after he finishes his cram school and they discuss running away from home. As she goes to like touch him, she gets her first experience of what we will call dimensional resonance. I hope you can hear the air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sees both the blue snow that the episode is is named after and a ghost spooky so the next day rather than going to cram school you leaves with another of his classmates isami to go to this test of courage but his mother will show up to take him away before they actually enter the graveyard but the rest of them continue without him haruka sees the blue snow again but no one else in the group does Two of them do encounter something, specifically one of the dragon knights who is not fully materialized and disappears after grabbing Isami's leg. They flee like sensible people, but another knight appears and gives chase. And Haruka realizes that the knight is after her, so she tries to lead him away from the others by heading back to the graveyard. This is where she comes face to face with him. Uh, Meanwhile, Yu has ran away from his mother's car and arrived at the graveyard. Uh, just in time to have the villain monologue saying, I am you. Uh, Episode two, Runaway. Uh, After he repeats the big reveal from last episode and attacks you, this dragon knight, who is called Karasu, is joined by another knight called Atori. These two have an exposition off, which reveals Haruka to be the so-called dragon torque, and that they are after the torque. Uh, Atari wants to take her away, Karasu wants to wait for reinforcements, and they have a little fight to get their own way. Another knight called Fukuro breaks them up, but it's not long before they end up being recalled to their own dimension by the instability the fight caused. After the fight, we get some more exposition, mainly just telling us that Haruka and Yu's present is similar to their world 15 years ago, and they must secure the torque or their world will cease to exist. So the next day, the girls are all hanging out with their teacher to eat cake and talk about the ghost they saw the previous night. The people in the cafe look at them like they're crazy because, well, obviously. And at the same time, Yu's mother is trying to reassert her control over him. And this is what causes him to run away from home. He runs into Isami, who jokes that he must be heading to a study camp because he's a nerd. Uh, But Yu feels provoked and it turns into a small fight. This is when Haruka runs into them, and she joins you in running away. They head to this station at the top of the Hakodate uh, cable car to get a last view of the city and to spend the night. And as they talk about the events from yesterday, they both experience a different kind of dimensional resonance, uh, since they both see some echoes of the past around them. Then the Ouroboros appears in the sky, and Haruka hears a voice from nowhere telling her that the past and the future have not separated. Episode 3, Hunted. As the Ouroboros disappears, and Yu has a mini breakdown to go with it, 
this is a great time for Atari to reappear and be an asshole. You and Haruka try to flee, but Atari stops them, and he analyzes you with some sort of weird eye power and determines that he is the Karasu of this dimension. Which really should not be a surprise because Karasu literally states that, but I guess Atari wasn't there to hear that. Yeah, um, well, Atari really hates Karasu. We kind of saw that already. And it's this hatred that caused him to try and destroy you. But Haruka jumps in the way, and a reaction with the dragon torque causes him to misfire and causing a lot of damage to the surrounding area. You and Haruka flee using the cable car, but Atari recovers and melts the truck that keeps the car attached to the cable, and it starts to fall. But the fall gets stopped by Karasu, who is using some sort of rope arm power. But it's easy for Atari to get some hits in on him because his attention's divided between these two different obstacles. They have some emotions. <laughs> uh, you panics, he thinks he's going to die, and Karasu has to give him a... It's like part pep talk, part... Well, if you want to die, then just die already, uh, sort of speech. And he's eventually forced to drop the car but manages to defeat Atari. They survive the drop, naturally, and they head to a road where they get a lift home from some scientists that we've encountered in the previous episodes, but aren't really that important. The scenes at their respective houses play out kind of like you'd expect. Yu's mother is clear, whereas Haruka's is much more kindly, and just be like, yeah, I used to believe nonsense when I was your age too. And this is a great time for the Dragon Knights to hide the evidence that they've caused mass damage. The rest of the episode is centered around Haruka. She chats a bit with her friends, who are more than willing to believe her, despite the fact that there's nothing to confirm her story. She goes around to try and see you, but his mother turns her away. And it's when she's looking up at his window that we see Haruka and you both feel some sort of intense chest pains. Uh, mm -hmm. We get the, like, da-dun-da-dun of the heart. And Haruka just appears in front of some warehouses where she finds a wounded Karasu. She gives him some water, but haha, it was a trap, and that leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger for the third episode. These are very dense episodes. When I wrote the notes, it looked like there was less going on in them than there is, but it, it takes a while to talk through. There was a lot of good stuff in all of them, with the animation, the sound design, and the characters themselves weren't too uninteresting. One of the interesting things is sort of when you've got a, a thing that has an ear of mystery, how much do you tell versus how much do you not tell? I'm not really sure if I'm getting enough or just the right amount. Like with Precure last week, I was like, yeah, they're 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 dripping out at the right rate. Whereas in this, it's like, what the fuck's even happening? Like, uh, we know almost nothing about uh, these dragon knights or why they're after the dragon torque, other than a, br a vague, well, we need to save our world with it. <laughs> But it feels like that's more of the latter half of the plot stuff, where this first is all about sorting out you, Karasu, and Haruka, and just putting them into their status quo. Like It feels like we're still very early with the way these characters are meant to interact. I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens in episode four, because now that Haruka is captured, they essentially have what they want. Like, Are they going to drag her into the future? Is that going to be our new status quo? Is she somehow going to escape? Or is uh, you going to accidentally arrive as well? The thing with mystery shows is, what do you use to get people invested? Do you use the mystery itself? Or do you use the characters and have the mystery sort of around them? I'm not sure which one of those two the uh, 
this show fits into. Both approaches are equally valid. It really just depends on if you if you put the mystery front and center, then you better have a damn good payoff to your mystery and not the JJ Abrahams and Stephen Moffat. Well, keep watching to find out something cool is definitely gonna happen, but it never does approach. So I have a controversial opinion. <laughs> not nothing unusual there. Uh, but like I read all of Monster this week and I'd never read Monster before. And like I was I find it very easy to get uh invested in the Dr. Tenma character. Uh-huh. But I ended up finding the whole thing kind of shallow and slow going. Mm-hmm. It was 18 volumes, but it could have easily been half that. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you. The scope of your mystery kind of decides how much time you can really reasonably spend on it without making it seem ridiculous that your protagonist still hasn't figured something out that your audience has figured out ages ago. Also, your mystery has to be, well, no, it doesn't have to be, but it hopefully would be thematically resonant in some way. Yes. And not just a mystery for mystery's sake. So that could be okay too. Like right here, like the mystery is kind of what is the dragon torque? What is this alternate world? Why do they need it? And these mysteries currently aren't really related thematically to the characters yet. It's mostly they're just directly related to the characters in that Karasu seems to be an alternate version of you, which means presumably there was a Haruka in their world as well. And I, I assume that's all going to come into play, but we don't really know how the mystery is thematically connected to the story yet. And Karas is expressing his self-hatred by literally expressing it him, himself <laughs> as, as a different person. It's unfair to compare this to number six because this is a two-cur show versus number six, which is a one-cur show, but I felt that number six had like a really good progression of this, of, of its mystery element, if you like. Whereas in this one, I'm not too unhappy, but I definitely am feeling the, all right, Hurry up a bit. <laughs> yeah, you talk about you're talking about the pacing of the mystery, but right now the show is really more about establishing its characters. And that leads us nicely to talking about Haruka, our protagonist, which uh, I, I quite liked her, though I found the way she fit into the show a bit odd at times. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where to start with uh, Haruka Kudo. I feel like she's kind of like a very responsible person. It's kind of hard to to really get that across. So, like, what do we know about her? She lives with her mother, who is a who is a single mother and, and a writer, and has had a divorce from her father. She's kind of doing all the cooking at home right now, so I guess that plays into this. She's the responsible one. Home. It's it's hard to like put a single thing on it, but I I definitely do get this mature this mature uh, this maturity come across in how she's voiced, especially when I think about uh, some of the other characters like uh, Isami and in particular Miho, uh, who is deaf classic. Uh, Miho is the kind of person who is six years old on the inside and will be until she is thirty. <laughs> I mean, you talk about her maturity, it really feels like, for me, that there's a, di a dichotomy of when she's together with Miho and her other friend Ai, she's a lot more childlike and she's laughing and smiling. But whenever we see her in kind of a dangerous scene, she's very nonchalant about everything. She she rarely shows fear or like yeah. any kind of extreme reaction to what's happening unless she's being directly attacked by, uh, by somebody. Like when Atari... When Atori tries to kill you in episode three, she's clearly distressed. But after that, like when they escape, she almost gets run over by a car and she's like, oh, hey, we're so lucky. 
in the first episode, she draws Caressu uh, away from the others. Yeah, sacrificing herself without really any 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 second thought. She has very little concern for her own well-being. I think if you were going to like really um, highlight the more childish aspects with her, I think that where that comes in is with her relationship with you. Uh, particularly what we hear about her like wanting to join him in running away because her reasons for running away seem less severe than his. She was like she was upset at her mom and she doesn't live beside her dad, so she's gonna run away and live with her dad. And it's <laughs> and, like as far as motivations go, she is only like twelve years old. That's fine. <laughs> uh, she's not even in middle school yet. Yeah, they're they're all elementary schoolers. I do think she's supposed to be slightly off though. Yes, certainly. It makes sense that she's a little off, though, because she's basically the living MacGuffin at this point. <laughs> yes. The dragon talk, which manifested as sort of a dragon dragon choker that appears around her neck whenever the Ouroboros Ur- Ur- uh, appears in the sky. That, that's what a torque is. A torque is a, uh, is a choker, basically. Oh, I didn't know that. How do we feel about her level of agency? Because, as Ian said, she's a quote-unquote MacGuffin. I feel I feel like she gets plenty to do with in these episodes. She chooses to lead um, Karasu away. Yeah. She chooses to run away with you. She's the one who really pulls him along and gets him to run uh, to run away from Atori. Uh, like she definitely ha- has a lot of agency, I'd say, within these first three episodes. I, I guess I'll mention uh, right now who, that she is voiced by a Haruka <laughs> uh, herself, uh, Haruka mm. Kudo. I would say that if she's most famous, right, I think it's for uh, being Hagami in Honey and Clover. For some reason, I thought it was important to note down that she was Sayu in Death Note. And I think that's because when I heard the voice of Haruka, I was thinking, this reminds me of something. And then I was looking at the list and I was like, yeah, I kind of, this kind of feels right. But then I realized I don't actually remember what Sayu sounds like. One of the other things that's really distinguishing about Haruka is her design. Because she looks kind of different from every other character in the show. Both in the fact that she looks a lot more, quotation marks, moe in a way, and that she has a completely different style of eyes compared to every other character. But Denny, everybody has a very different style of eyes to everyone else. No, that's not true. It's mostly just Dr. Remains. Ooh. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> well it's true it's true <laughs> you did yeah both of our protagonists have different eye shapes to everyone else because mm-hmm. she's got kind of cat like eyes I guess this doesn't make any sense but they're more overly than normal <laughs> mm-hmm. Like most of the characters besides you have the general one diagonal slanted line and then a round circle uh, for the bottom of the eye Haruka as Freya said has more oval eyes and uh, you has more trapeze eyes and it's actually nice another nice way we can recognize that Karis is the same character as him because they are both the only characters with trapeze eyes it also makes you look like he's from Madoka so you is our um, our local sad teen with an abusive parent this time of our, our vector of abuse is you know, the, oh, I expect good things from you, and we live in a household on our own, and I'm really in, uh, really insecure about stuff. Like, is she I a tiger you... mom? Because I don't really feel that she's, like, really assertive enough to be a tiger mom. It's more... She's more of the 
if this was a music anime, she she was she would be forcing him to play piano even though he hates it. That's the best way I can describe her character. Yeah, although she's way more like unsure of herself than that kind of character is normally, which mm. is, I mean, fair enough. I mean, yeah, he's just not a very happy person. When we meet him in his introductory scene, he's literally cutting his nail with a box cutter, like shaving them away, which I can't imagine that feels very pleasant. In class. Yes, in class as well. Like, my God, the teacher should have taken that away from him. Yeah, like, who has a box cutter in elementary school in your classroom? <laughs> hmm. It makes, uh, it, it makes perfect sense for him to have a box cutter, to be honest, based upon everything else. Yeah, he's, I mean, he, he seems like a prepared person. He literally has, like, a kit hidden away full of supplies for running away. Like, he has a sleeping bag, I assume food, and various other things. And then he just kind of gets dragged along with Har- by Haruka. It's funny how we're plunged straight into the the part of his arc where he rebels, mm-hmm. which, I mean, is, is fine, to be honest. I think, like, one of the things we see hear him say in each of the episodes at least once is, I am going crazy, which maybe that's his catchphrase, but... So, yeah, so yeah much like Saya last week, his character is essentially, devi- uh, is essentially defined by a lack of confidence. Although he is prepared to run away, he doesn't seem to actually believe that he actually could run away when he talks about it. He's just like, I'm going to be in this town forever. Uh, even when uh, Haruka says, well, when you're an adult, you can do whatever the hell you want. Even when he does the rebellion, quote unquote, in the first episode to go away to the uh, test of courage in the graveyard, there's no reason, I think, to believe that he would have done it had Isami not showed up to like take him away. Yeah. yeah. I reckon he probably would have just went to uh, the the cram school and crammed. <laughs> Although when when his mother is driving away, he does snap. And literally forced the car to stop and run yeah. away. Uh, eventually she gets kind of more catatonic in episode three. Mm. Though I did think it was kind of odd that his mother knew where to find him. They decided to go on a random test of courage they presumably didn't tell anybody about, and... The cram school calls his mother to let them know he's not arrived, and suddenly she drives up immediately to the graveyard because maybe she just knows, where could my son have gone? Ah, the graveyard, that's where all the sad kids hang out. See, Denny, what I think you're forgetting is that parents talk to one another, and I actually think that Haruka's mother probably did know that she was away to the graveyard. Mm, Like, she seems like the kind of parent who's like, okay, have fun. (laughs) Yes. I mean... I, I, like in episode three, when Haruka is talking to her mother about like, oh, we were attacked. Her mother's like, oh, well, isn't that nice? I also always dreamed about something cool happening. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I, w- I wonder whether she actually mentioned that they were quotation marks running away from home, and if her mother had any reaction to that. Like, I doubt it. I mean, she probably just like came home late, and her mother was like, uh. whereas. I don't think it mattered at all to use mother what reason he had for being out. He was out of the house and that's bad enough, whether he was running away or if he was, I don't know, riding a, a motorcycle in an underground street race. She she wouldn't be happy either way. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why he picked underground street races. At some point, I guess we should probably mention that Yugoto is voiced by 
two people, spoiler. Uh, the only one I'm going to mention is Fujiko Takimoto. Her most famous role is probably Suguru Misato in Maho Romantic, which is, she's the male lead and is not a good show. Although, fun fact, she married a co-star uh, from that show. She's also Young Link in several Legend of Zelda games, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Smash, etc. Speaking of voice acting, that actually brings me to something that I thought was just a nice touch in the version me and Freya watched uh, in the subtitling, which is that they included uh, their Hokkaido accents in them. Certain uses of Watashi or Boku were written as um, apostrophe an instead of I. Like Ian's mentioned that that's not present in his version, but I just thought it was a nice yeah. touch to to include like regional dialect in subtitling. Yeah, the the DVDs I have do not have that. Mm. I'll be honest though, unlike with say Ghost Town, I didn't actually notice the uh, if they were if they were using a different accent. Anyway, there was really good use of uh, visual storytelling to uh, contrast the situations of these two characters because in Erica's home. Their house is all filled out with stuff on the shelves. They have a cabinet full of stuff. They have a bunch of plants in the background. They have a huge fluffy dog. Their food is multicolored. And her and her mother have a sort of friendly conversational relationship. And all of the shots are taken at sort of even level. And then you go to use household and all of the shots are at either Dutch angles or they're up in one of the corners looking down at uh, you at his table where, where he looks like he's being hemmed in. Uh, and it kind of looks like it's from a CCTV perspective. Also, just her, he, she's got the like curious cat like eyes, and he's got the trapezoid eyes, which make him look very sleep deprived, to be honest, which is <laughs> appropriate. But yeah, I thought that was a good use of visual contrast. That's actually really cool. I didn't actually notice that while I was watching it and even rewatching it. I was, when I went through it again, I was looking at the 3D camera uh, integration of the show, but we'll talk more about that later. And I didn't really notice the distinct separation of angles between the two characters. I think the only other character that's really worth talking about within these first three episodes is Karasu, our you from the future. Though he doesn't really do all that much yet, besides stopping Atari from kill from taking uh, Haruka and presumably killing you. Being oddly villainous. Yes, he's oddly villainous and very he's very antagonistic towards you. I assume that's just of an evolution of you's current self-hatred, tempered by, like, 20-something years of living in an apocalypse. As Ian has said, we don't really know what his power is. It seems to be some kind of rope-controlling, metal-controlling thing that he can shape, and, like, tentacles, and it's kind of weird. Yes, if you've ever seen Tetsuo the Iron Man, it's kind of like that. Although I don't, I don't know who watching this will have watched Tetsuo the Iron Man, but there you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Karasu is voiced by Kazuya Nakai, who I guess is the most notable person of the three we've talked about. So he has won a Best Supporting Actor award at the Fifth Sea Rewards uh, for his roles in notable anime, One Piece and Gintama. You might have heard of them. I, I, think, I've, I think we've mentioned them before. Um, <laughs> So I, I guess I should tell you who he is. He's uh, Zoro in One Piece. He's uh, Hijikata in Gintama. Uh, Toshiro Hijikata. Uh, also, uh, Dati Masamune in Sengoku Basura, because why not? Uh, although, actually, I'm a little bit more interested in his uh, game work, because 
I mean, aside from being in pers- uh, being in persona and Danganronpa, he is wacker. <laughs> his uh, Persona 3 character is very similar to Karasu. Uh, do you happen to know who he voices in Danganronpa? Uh, Mondo Owada. Oh, that guy, delinquent guy. Okay. Well, there's really not much more we can say about Karasu or any of the other Dragonites because we really don't know all that much about any of them. Our main way of learning anything about them is really through the way they're animated and. I think that leads us nicely into the topic of animation itself, then. Freya? So, our director and original creator this week is Kazuki Akane, who is who by far is best known for directing The Vision of Escaflone in the 90s. Ian, have you watched all of it? I don't remember. All of it, no, but I have tried to get other people to watch it along. <laughs> I remember watching the first episode with it, uh, with you, I uh, just remember steampunk mix, which were kind of cool, but I don't remember why I didn't watch any more of it. He kind of turned it into more of a uh, shoujo uh, story than uh, I think the <laughs> creator Shoji Kawamori had in mind. But, hmm. oh well, sounds like an improvement, to be honest. Um, <laughs> his other less famous works include the re-adaptation of Birdie the Mighty, Birdie the Mighty Decode and its sequels. He made the spin-off series of OVAs slash films for Code Geass, which is Code Geass, Akito the Exiled. And most recently, he made Hoshii no Sora, which has a sad production story, but there you go. Well, that was the one where they decided to cut, where the production, uh, where half the episodes got cut, isn't it? Well, it's they told them partway through when they'd already done about eight episodes. Yeah, like, yeah. That they would only be getting 12 instead of 24. So they decided instead of trying to truncate it all into the rest, they just decided to do the first half and then hopefully the rest of it will come out in some form sometime. Mm-hmm. But I doubt it. So Akane is famous for his ambition and unwillingness to compromise on things, for better or worse. Uh, Agito had significant delay issues partly because of this. So, But I don't want to make him sound like... Uh, tyrannical director because he's stated multiple times that he thinks his role is to um give an environment where animators can like do their thing to the to the max uh i don't know why i said it that incredibly douchey way but there you go um cowabunga dudes in the 90s (laughs) yeah as a quote from uh sakuga blog thank you as far as he's concerned, it's the job of people like him to tread new paths that these youngsters can follow and actually put those skills to good use. Noin is interesting because he went out of his way to create an environment where uh, a lot of the idiosyncratic animators at Satellite would be able to... In terms of anime creatives, he's maybe one of the most frank people I've seen in interviews about the state of Japanese society and the industry. And he is not as shitty. He has, like, um, okay views about LGBTQ people, so I think he's cool. That's good. Oceano Sora would have been great if it had been full 24 episodes. Oh, well. I mean, it's a real shame that we have to say, oh, he has non-negative views about LGBTQ people as a modifier. But that's not not just an assumed thing, but hey, that's where we are. Yeah, he also gets extra points for explicitly calling out that uh, words like Okama suck. Uh, series composition is also him, and uh, co-writing it is Hiroshi Onogi, who's a regular collaborator with him on 
Verdi and Akito, and is also the series composer for things like Aquarion, the 2018 adaptation of Gegege no Kitaro, um, Arjuna, and I guess notably to anime fans. Uh, I don't know why I said it like that. And I guess notably to... Even casual anime fans. I guess notably to even casual... Oh, no, I hate that shit. <laughs> I know, I know. I guess notably to everyone... And I guess notably to everyone, he's the series composer for FMA Brotherhood. Uh, speaking of Gigigeno Kintower, that was actually something I was looking up because Haruka's character design really reminded me of one of the character designs from Gigigeno Kintower in the 2018 reboot, specifically the cat girl, because she has similarly shaped oval eyes. Well, there you go. Mm. I think that, well, none of us are really Sakuga people. We're We're like baby Sakuga people. <laughs> we appreciate it whenever we see it. We appreciate you. <laughs> we don't know enough to actively talk about it. But, um, so this is going to be uh, like, an, an, like a nice change of pace in that uh, we're actually going to spend a decent amount of time talking about the animation rather than be like, it was functional. So, uh, Noyen is interesting because it was sort of a testing ground for a lot of early digital animators because Satellite has a bit of a history doing uh, this sort of thing, because I'm going to ruin your trivia by doing it now. Damn you! They made the world's first fully digitally animated TV series, Bit the Cupid, in 96. So it sort of laid the bedrock for later, Birdie the Mighty Decode, which is sort of seen as the beginning of the true digital era of uh, anime, in particular the term webgen which is used to describe the wave of digital animators who came in around that time and have come in several more waves since then. Yeah, the integration of the 3D camera work is very impressive in this show with its, with its 3D backgrounds. On my third watch through, I specifically paid attention to it and I counted about 15 shots where I specifically could call out these 3D camera work, but there were another dozen or so shots where I couldn't definitively tell whether it was simply 2D or 3D. Like, all of the shots really stood out, and it particularly reminded me of a few weeks ago when we talked about Yokohama. There was that one shot in the second OVA where we have, like, a faux 3D camera shot around Alpha's face, and a lot of this just reminded me of that. This is just an evolved version of it. Yeah. Um, I will say, I think a lot of the ones where you're, like, more unsure of the work of at least in episode one of the work, I'm going to call it a specific animator for once. And a lot of those scenes, at least in episode one, are the work of Hiroshi Okubo, who mm-hmm. often pursues these sort of 3D uh, action scenes, in particular the um, the opening where they're fighting the Cronenbergian uh, Buddha monster. That wa- that wasn't the anime. I thought you were gonna you were gonna shout out, but that's okay because <laughs> I'll get to shout out an anime or two. Oh, good. Two in one episode. Amazing. Also, just to note, uh, Akane tends to have a lot of dynamic camera work in his shows. Well, speaking of dynamism, even beyond the 3D camera movements they do in a lot of these shots, even the 2D shots have a certain dynamism to them. Our first real shot of Haruka is her lying on a bed where on a, from a top-down perspective looking down at her. And instead of just having that shot, then cutting to the second medium-distance shot of uh, of her side and to see her waking up, we have the camera moving closer to her in that first shot. It's just a nice little touch that makes the scene more engaging com- as compared to what it would have been if we had the two still shots, even though they would have worked just as fine. 
And then immediately after that, we have our first really big non-action 3D camera movement shot where she throws open her windows and the camera pans out, pulls back to show her CG house. And it, it's just a nice touch, especially since they don't overuse it in every single scene. Like the majority of yeah. the anime is still just standard 2D animation, but they just do a great job with the camera movement whenever it's used. And even the angles, as you mentioned in the character bits, are used to great effect. One of my favorite shots in the series was in episode one, when they're in front of the graveyards, they're standing on a sloped surface. And usually the camera would just would be aligned so the characters would be standing straight up. But here, Akane chose to have the shot so that the camera is aligned with the slope and all the characters are kind of standing diagonally. Yeah. And it, it, it's a very uncomfortable shot, but it looks great. There's a lot of good use of Dutch angles in this show. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we'll have more to say about that in a second, but since you mentioned uh, some of the camera work, uh, particularly when they're on the road in the first episode, um, there's a scene when they're just being, uh, when we're just getting, I, I assume it's Ator, uh, Atori uh, who is coming to attack them, but it might have been... Uh, it might have been Karasu. We, we don't know at this point. When we're getting like the look of panic on their face and then the camera goes low and hits, goes below like one of their knees and then p- looks up at them from below, uh, looks up at the at the Dragon Knight from below. That was one that really stuck out to me. That that was animated by Takahiro Kishida, according to uh, Sakagaburo. <laughs> <laughs> and, this one, and the reason this one was thinking of is because it kind of reminded me of one that Sakagaburo doesn't have a credit for which was when they were in the car and you just saw how the backgrounds were moving. It reminded me of Yes, that. yes, yes. I also noted that when, when I was rewatching it. So I suspect they're by the same person, but I don't know. Because mm. probably baby Sakaga. Before, before we talk about the Dragon Knights, I just wanted to mention something that, Freya, you earlier mentioned that you looked like he was made by the... looked like he belonged into Madoka, which works out quite nicely because this is, after all, the character designer of Madoka. And also, Kazuki apparently had to fight quite a lot with non-production staff about the character designs because there was a very large push to moify them and make them more fitting with the current anime trends, which caused a a certain amount of delays for the show, apparently. The production staff eventually managed to win said fight and keep these original designs that you're seeing now. You see what I mean about him being really stubborn. (laughs) It's like I said, it's a good and a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. It's nice that he's willing to stand up for his vision and not to compromise. It's even better that he's willing to stand up for his team's vision. Yes, exactly. I don't particularly know that the, this show wouldn't have worked per se if they'd went for a Moy design, but I appreciated most uh, was the levels of character deformation and sort of comic animation that they went to with these characters. Certainly, her, their friends uh, get way more deformed than uh, mm. they ever do. Like Isami's face in the graveyard when he's like teeth are clattering, clacking, chattering, chattering. That kind of uh, jarred with the tone of the scene, but mm. oh well. The main place for deformation are really the dragon knights, who are all wearing giant black cloaks, which makes it very easy to smear them and give them a really expressive animation. But even besides that, like, uh, the ghost Ian mentions that in episode one, when we see the half-appearing Dragonite, his face looks like it's melting. The way they're animated, they really flow. Like, in that very first 
dimensional distortion we see, there is a shot where Karasu kind of warps closer and his entire body swells in size and then shrinks back together. Like there's there's just so much great animation work with these Dragon Knights alone. At times I would say they move like lightning. Um, yeah. they mm-hmm. they morph into like just lines that just zigzag around. Also, the way they sort of uh, dash around and then sort of uh, uh, stand on things, um, it does make them look very bird-like, which, you know, they're all named after birds. Also, in particular, the way Atori is animated is very uh, particular. He has a lot of sort of, well, you said uh, reptile, I would say vampire. Although the cloaks certainly make it easier for the deformation, they do still have a lot of it when he's like removed his and has his weird six-armed I'm not sure how to describe it. <laughs> like starfish backpack brain thing? It's weird. It's cool and weird. He's charging his laser. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is kind of annoying. This is a mild point, but it is kind of annoying that, of course, the most overtly villainous one is the one wearing eye makeup. Mm. One random thing in episode two uh, that I think is the consequence of the person who storyboarded it, NG Yasuda. There's a few backgrounds in that where the again the perspective has sort of walked in a semi fisheye angle. Nope, in a semi fisheye uh, lens where they'll have objects coming off the ground or the walls, but in like really odd angles where it it doesn't really make sense. There's a they use it quite well to show the distance between uh, which dragon knight is it. Between Fukuro and Karasu when they're back in the future world in their barracks. Mm. Oh yeah, that shot. Yeah, that also looked nice. Another thing, just while we're wrapping up animation, for some reason we have three bath scenes in three episodes, all focused on Haruka. They're not like sexualized though. <laughs> no, no, but it's just a thing that that happens. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I was. Maybe thinking that this is kind of what I was thinking about with her maturity, because she does it every episode, and it seems to be where she goes to think yeah. and just sort of reflect on the day. It's reflecting in water, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> also, the dog goes in with her. He must be miserable in there. He's too big for it. But yeah, we didn't even talk about the effect. We didn't talk about um, the color palette change when they go to um, the Dimension Resonance. There's a lot in here to like unpack, and and we are bad at doing this. So. Look forward to Sakuga Blog's eventual analysis of this show, which they said they will maybe make. It will be much better than ours. Or or just watch it yourself. It's good. Absolutely. Yeah. Failed to bring out the gorgeousness of the show <laughs> visually. Yes. Can we at least do it credit musically? <laughs> no, definitely not. But there is a lot to talk about here as well. So our composer is Hikaru Nanase, or as she was known around when this was made, Masumi Ito. She's composed for a bunch of things, just so quick examples, Beyond the Boundary. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote down Infinite Stratos, but there you go. Um, and the Zone of the Enders uh, anime that I always forget exists. Oh, wait, what? I guess I have something else to put on my list. <laughs> Shit. So the music choice here is interesting because they've associated certain instruments or certain groups of instruments with uh, characters. Mm-hmm. So with, uh, Danny has described it as Renfair music or JRPG setting out on an adventure music. I would describe it as, I would definitely say Renfair more than the other thing. 
But only when uh, Harika is around or when she's with her friend. Because, you know, she's the semi-exploratory person. She's definitely the most happy out of the three, so the kind of more happy music fits her well. Yeah. Anime actually does this quite a lot with the use like Ren Fair <laughs> medieval Ren Fair music in sort of scenes of characters hanging out or exploring things or being semi lighthearted, particularly with kids. And then for you, they have a sad piano. They have a sad piano track that always plays when the, he's on his own. Sad boy. Well, to be clear, on the soundtrack, these tracks are literally called Use Theme or Karas' Theme. Well, there you go. And Haruka has a bunch of pieces dedicated to her. And then for the... I keep wanting to call them the crows. And then for the um, Dragon Knights, they have, in particular in the action scenes, they have the sort of ominous choir yell, yell chanting uh, with some orchestral it's 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 the ominous choir music I go to. For me, it's Sephiroth. Don 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 Sephiroth. <laughs> well, what I really want to call out besides the music is the sound director Jin uh, Akatagawa, who's worked on a ton of shows such as Genshiken, Toradora, Anohana, Railgun, No Game No Life, Your Eye in April, Gundam IBO. We even met him two weeks ago in Die Maidler, though I am much more appreciative of his work here. You know, these sound directors, they <laughs> they really work on a ton of things. But I was really impressed by the way sound was used here uh, in this show to convey impact and the characters. I think Ian mentioned when he was talking about animation that the Dragonites feel like lightning, that they move like it. Which, which is also helped by the sound because there's a lot of static electricity sound or screeching whenever they're moving about or fighting. Aturi literally uses electricity blasts to fight, but there's a lot of good sound work to just convey their otherness at yeah. any one given moment. For all the characters in the present, the sound work is fairly standard. They don't really have anything exaggerative about them, but whenever we have one of the Dragon Knights on screen, there's always some kind of sound effect playing that really impacts the mood. And it's usually an electrical noise, like you said. Yes. And then for the more mysterious time travel elements, they use sort of uh, it's kind of standard at this point, but they use sort of ethereal whale noises and that sort of thing for the uh, for the Ouroboros and the uh, the ghosts in episode two. But yeah, just great work all around on the soundtrack. I was really impressed by it, and I don't generally notice it all that much in anime because a lot of the time, at least to me, sound work in anime is if I don't notice it, then it's done its job and created a believable recreation of the world, or what I assume the world to sound like in case of fantasy or giant mechanime. If I don't notice the sound there, that's just because I assume that's how it's supposed to sound, so it just blends in. But here it really stood out to me, and that really worked quite well for me. So let's move on to the openings and endings then. Yeah, so the opening is called Idea. It's by Euphonius. You've probably heard them if you've watched enough anime uh seen them described as a prog pop rock group <laughs> which i don't really under completely understand how something can be both prog and pop but i guess pink floyd kind of managed yes it. well oh no let's not get into the debate what counts as prog or not right now <laughs> but anyway uh a lot of their credits for anime or for visual novels tend towards their more romantic shows 
their most famous thing is almost certainly going to be Magmel, which is the theme to Clanad. What we have here in this opening is they went for a sort of soft, almost sort of speak singing over just a small drum uh, machine rhythm. We get some more instrumentation coming in a bit later, uh, strings in particular. Um, but the thing that really sort of sticks out is the sort of reverb, maybe even a chorus effect they have on the the, sing, the song. Yeah. It did a decent job of fitting with the visuals they picked because the sparse instrumentation at the start really matched the winter images they were going with. And when the thing started to pick up, that's when they switched to the, uh, I hesitate to describe it as the beach episode part of the opening, but <laughs> it was the beach episode part of the opening. They're not even on a beach. No, but it all gets brighter and happier yeah. and, y you know. Although I, I don't think the transition quite worked, but oh well. I think if anything let it down, it's that they start to incorporate all the sort of fighting elements because of the Dragon Knights that they felt they had to incorporate. But they kept it sort of reasonable because they used the same style of animation that we're ex for the Dragon Knights as we saw in the opening. I do like the, uh, the fact that they add in a letterbox for the future scenes in the opening, at least most of them. As for the ending, uh, this is called uh, Yoaki no Ashioto. Uh, so footsteps at dawn by a group called Solua, and so when ENN fails me, I resorted to the Japanese <laughs> Wikipedia. Their discography is actually only two singles: this and the opening, and the uh, and the theme to Project Blue Earth SOS. This ending made me sleepy, <laughs> especially because they opened it on an image of Haruka sleeping mm -hmm. uh, with the with the piano. Like visually, there's like nothing really to it. The faded coloring is nice, but mm. they only have three real images. They have Haruka sleeping. They have the Hakodate scene, which uh, just changes from uh, night to day, and Karasu standing on his cross like he does. Well, it's an interesting choice to have it be a sort of wind down, sleepy ending. Especially because they ended it on like cliffhangers. Like maybe that's the point: is to give you sort of a reflection time. There are shows that do whiplash endings really well, but they usually have more off-kilter songs in that case. Yeah, there there was supposed to be a discussion about time travel here, but we haven't written it yet, and I guess time travel wasn't invented when we did write it, so we don't have it. Sorry. So with that, I think it's time for us to move on to our verdict. Denny, how many dragon torques are we giving this show? Well, we can't give them more than one, because there's only one. <laughs> Um, well, I think I really enjoyed these first three episodes, especially on my second and even third rewatch, which really doesn't happen all that often. So I think I'm going to end up giving this a four. Uh, I'm very interested in watching more of this. I was very impressed by both the sound work and the animation. The mystery is fine currently. I'm not that intrigued, but I am willing to see where they go with it. And multiple dimensions and timelines can always lead to very interesting results. Yeah, I think a four works quite well for me. How about you, Freya? How many Dragon Torques would you give this show? Um, so I do like a lot of the visual elements. I like the uh, different methods of animating. This feels like a show that's more interesting to talk about than it is to actually experience, but that feels a bit unfair. Because you have to watch it to actually talk about it. Yes, but I would watch it to talk about it, not necessarily to watch it for myself. Mm. Although Akane's got enough goodwill for me that I'll probably watch the whole thing at some point. We'll come back to Birdie the Mighty Decode sometime because it's on my list. Three and a half? 
Do I think it worked better than Precure? I don't know if I do. Three and a half. All right, Ian, what about you? I definitely spent more time thinking about the visuals this episode than I have in a while. My main worry about this show is that from what I know about this, they are definitely going the bullshit quantum mechanics route. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Explaining things. At one point in the episode, they call Haruka like the absolute observer. Yeah, I just want to point out at some point we do have the line, the hyperspin stimulant reaction. And I'm not a physicist. I guess if I'm anything, I'm a computer scientist or a mathematician. But I have at least one book on quantum mechanics to hand. And I fucking hate what light novels and anime and visual (laughs) novels do to it because quantum mechanics isn't magic. Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's cat. Is Schrodinger's cat really that much of a trope? Yes. Uh, like, there's a whole Twitter about just Schrodinger's cat in visual novels. Oh, right. Visual novels, not anime. And, and it was in essentially every light novel anime about uh, the like 2008 period. Like, Haruki was one of the less bad examples of this. <laughs> well, Ian. Do you know anything about Hugh Everett's Many Worlds interpretation <laughs> or all the Copenhagen interpretation? Because that's yes, apparently what I, I, know, I know things about this. <laughs> and so uh, I am very nervous to watch more about this because it's straying into the territory where I'm going to want to hurt someone. <laughs> I enjoyed these episodes enough that it's either a three and a half or a four, somewhere in that region. Okay, so verdicts are rendered. Denny, do you have any additional facts for us? No, Freya stole my one fact, so you get nothing this week. I have. Damn it! (laughs) Which I literally discovered about 20 minutes ago. The word noin means to shake or to tremble in Coptic, and also in Greek, noin, or I'm not sure how it's pronounced in Greek, means to perceive, to observe, or to think. Ah, I see. We both read the same Wikipedia article. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, 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 Danny, do you know what? Freya not only stole your fag, they stole mine. <laughs> because because, I, because I, I read not just the same Wikipedia article as you, but, like, I mean, it comes from the word uh, nous, or I guess Americans say nous, uh, which is intellect or intelligence. Cool. The reason I knew it was a philosophy term is because when I went to search for to see if anyone had done academic writing on it, all the references to Noi from philosophy people. Same here, same here. Like I, I really found nothing on the show. As usual, my best work is stolen from other people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fine because like we're hacks anyway. Denny, what are we watching next week? Okay, so next week we're watching Sakura Quest. Okay. So it begins. <laughs> <laughs> dum, 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 dum. We're the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com.